Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on 106.5 102.3 FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Mr. Um, David North Martino is uh, somewhere around here. In the house. He's in here the I house. Am. In the house. You lost. In the House of Mystery. Would you like some candy? <laughs> Oh, boy. I don't know, Al. <laughs> I don't know. Hmm. Got to think about that. Yeah. No, you need <laughs> cheesecake or something like that. But no. Oh, well, yeah, well, then I wouldn't think about that. No. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you're pretty happy. Johnny Depp won. Hey, you're right behind that. Was I? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just thought I'd say that just so that we get. Yeah, some, you're just trying some, to get me in trouble. That's right. I'm. I'm trying to turn I'm, you into a bad light here. They're always picking yeah, on me. I want some bad mail headed. I'm not taking day. sides on this stuff. Well, I heard that you dressed up like An- Amber Heard all the time, Amber Heard, <laughs> and you had a little dress and you put on the wig and you do the whole thing. So, well, that I might don't... be true. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean you're on her side, but no. Johnny Depp turned fifty-nine. Really? Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize he was that old, but no. I guess he is. Same yeah. age as me. Wow. Wow. Anyway, that's crazy. Well, now speaking of uh, nothing like Hollywood. Anyway, we've got a um, a writer, director, producer, punk band singer. He's he's just doing it all, <laughs> and um, I don't know. Anyway, um, listen, let's, let's invite him in. That's Mr. P. David Eversall. Thank you for being here. Absolutely, I'm suddenly much more intrigued now that I know about all this Amber Heard uh, cosplay going on. Well, he's he's quite he he scared one of our guests so badly when he was in a dress because this guest thought he was 
something where smoking a cigar and wearing a dress. And then once he saw Dave, that was like, oh my God. That was it. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, well, you know, well <laughs> yeah. it is Gay Pride Month. So. Well, <laughs> yeah. Dave doesn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the only thing I, you know, I keep telling That's him. Kind of guy. Yeah. Well, he, I keep, but yeah, he, you know, it's fine. But why he wears army boots to go with it, I don't. <laughs> it just it's not the look but they're comfortable <laughs> right? those gay pride parades it's a long walk yeah. <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah well i'm not even going there boy i'll tell you <laughs> like he ever walks anywhere anyway yeah. um so you have quite the history here i'm i'm very impressed um uh, wow so how did your life go this way like how did you get into I mean, what went wrong no why did you why are you like filmmaker director you've got all this stuff um yeah you know it's funny because the um the motto of our company the Ebersole Hughes company is we're always up to something and it tends to be true we we kind of uh you know don't like to get too boxed in and we'll sort of after we've done something for a while we start thinking well what do we want to do now so um I was an English major at UCLA before I went to NYU film school. And so for me, the dream was always to write a book. I mean, that was the, the sort of top, uh, you know, achievement that, that I could sort of put on, on the list of things that I would hope that I would someday do in my life. And so, uh, I took this hard left turn into film school in 1986 and kind of never looked back. But last year, or two years ago, I guess now, you know, we, we had that crazy thing called the pandemic and I had time. Oh. And well, so I'd had this book kind of cooking up inside of my head and I thought, why don't I sit down and, and, uh, you know, put my fingers where my mouth is. <laughs> well, be careful. Um, <laughs> but I would have thought co-starring with Paula Abdul. <laughs> well, <laughs> would be the dream know, of anybody. And there you are. That was at 13 years old and I did not peak. That tells you something about my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that's a, that is kind of an interesting story, which is that uh, I was at that point, you know, theater arts kid, and somebody came into our junior high school auditorium and announced that they were casting a film, uh, all kids, and it was a musical. And so I went to the audition. It was one of those cattle calls where people just lined up around the block. And when they brought you in, you had to dance, you had to sing, uh, you had to act. And slowly but surely, I kept getting winnowed down until ultimately I won the lead part in this film. <laughs> wow. And... Uh, and we were 13, so Paula Abdul was not famous. She was just a girl who went to, you know, junior high school out in the valley. Yeah. And my husband, Todd, was going through memorabilia in our garage uh, and looked into a box that my grandmother had given us. And he said, were you in a movie with Paula Abdul in 1977? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know, that's possible. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it, it, it's funny. It's revived because you would think because of me you know, and, and my illustrious career. But no, Paula Abdul has gone on to fame and fortune, and people continue to to bring that film back up. Wow. Um, yeah, she's done really well. <laughs> yeah. Talented little girl. Yeah. And, well, and your death in Venice. Now, that's quite a, an achievement too, right? Well, Death in Venice, California, and it was uh, it won Best Film, Best Director, uh, at AFI when I went to AFI film school 
And uh, that was sort of my, my beginning of really entering the film industry. Uh, it was quite, uh, I mean, blindsided by, by winning. It was uh, exciting and very cool to, to be kind of singled out like that. But, uh, but it, it helped me start. It was the it was the first film that really got noticed. It ended up getting theatrically released. It's thirty minutes long, along with a sixty minute documentary on Paul Bowles, um, which of course you know me with my literary background was thrilling to me. So uh, they liked the they liked the underpinnings of the of the Thomas Mann novella underneath my story. It also it's 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 blended a little bit with Lolita as well. Um, and so they liked that along with this you know, literary documentary that was short and it gave them a theatrical release. So, hmm. uh, so that was my first, you know, foray out into the world. Do you feel like, um, let's say um, Hollywood or let's just say the whole film industry as well as now books, now that you've got this first book out, do, do you feel you have to be careful on, being in a gay subject and how you present it? Well, it's interesting because actually Death in Menace, California is the first gay-themed film ever to win Best Film at AFI, and that was 1995. Uh, so back then, they were still discouraging us from doing content. And uh, somewhere along the line, I think it was my, my uh, entertainment lawyer, when I think Queer as Folk and some other thing came out, she said to me, you know, suddenly you're trendy. Like, you're everywhere, you people. <laughs> so I, uh, I don't, I actually don't think so in that I do think that it helps to have a niche now. And uh, right now the world is so noisy and there's so much content, so much information out there for people to have to weed through. So to have something that can be categorized, I think actually kind of helps people at least know what they're looking at, why they're looking at it. Um, so I think at this point, it's, it, it becomes a bit of a plus. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's all true. But of recent times, do you think that um, – well, you see, I think what I'm getting at is there's always a certain presentation of how gay people should be, how they should appear, what they should say, how they should act, and things like that. And I just wonder if that sort of interferes in how you present something. Oh, that's interesting. You mean like, you know, do I, do I feel any kind of responsibility or, or do I have some sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, idea of limitations on what I'm allowed to express? I haven't really, I have never really felt that way or thought about it in those terms. And usually what I think is that if I'm scared to put it down into print, whether it's a, you know, screenplay format or, or book format now, uh, I should do it because personally, I feel like, if it if it makes me nervous, then it probably is good. <laughs> so <laughs> so if, I, if I'm afraid of the buttons that I might push, or if I'm afraid that it might I don't know draw some kind of attention towards me or something like that, uh, I usually don't shy away from it. But that's kind of personal. I, I I understand what you're saying, and I think that it's true that there is a lot of thought going around what is kind of correct. And we do it, it, it. What I think about it is that it's great because after all these years of nobody giving a crap about it and just doing and saying whatever they wanted, no matter how hurtful, we actually now have to take a second and say, is that right? Is that wrong? Um, we made a movie with Cher uh, about her family and, you know, Chaz had just transitioned. And so 
kind of getting they, them, there correct at that moment was very hard uh, for her, for, for Cher, and for us, like even, you know, dealing with and interviewing Chaz. Um, so, it, you know, there's been, a, there's been a lot of conversation around all of these things. And I actually think that, that in the end, after we get through with how awkward it is <laughs> to, uh, to have to think every time before we speak, that eventually I think it's going to be an, an extremely positive thing for the culture. Yeah, yeah. Americans aren't used to thinking before they speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> is, that, is that the bottom line here? <laughs> we're, we're a sloppy nation. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it's all good, but I just I just worry about um, things getting altered away from what they really are. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't really understand gay life, let's say, and um, they're not in it, but they're supportive. But I think but it, see, things getting altered from from the way they are, from your perspective, I think is the thing that's interesting. We were making, uh, we got hired once to do a commercial, and we were doing decades. And the woman who was the producer of it was African American, and we were doing the '60s, thinking it was jubilant. And she said, "You know, that's a very hard hard period for me. That's a very hard period for my family." And we were like, oh, "You know, take a take a seat back and think about." You know, your perspective might not be the same as everybody else's perspective on, right. on how things are, right? Yeah. Interesting. No, it is true. I mean, I hear that, cause, you know, even the old, the the sentiment that, oh, uh, you know, back in the good old days where things were better, make America great again, you know, that if you really thought about the 60s and all the assassinations and the Black Panthers and Charles Manson and all the other things going on, it, it, it people just have this flawed idea of what things, how good they were. And the lack of opportunity. I love Dolly Parton's song in the good old times when things were bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I think it's a sense of realism that people don't always get, you know. Um, well, that's interesting. So how did you get onto the book? Now, 99 Miles from L.A., and uh, it's an interesting title, interesting book, and uh, it, it's a little surprising. I, it wasn't quite what I expected. It's a good uh -huh. thing. Not a bad thing. I was um, <laughs> shocked. So how did this happen? Right. It, it really uh, germinated from going to see a Johnny Mathis concert. A good friend of ours, Donna Lauren, who's like a songbird from the 60s. I don't know if you know her. She was in the uh, Beach Blanket bingo movies and yeah. uh, Dr. Pepper <laughs> Girl. Super cool. She, she uh, uh, hosted Shindig. And uh, it was her birthday, and she took us to a Johnny Mathis concert. And he sang this song live on stage that I'd never heard before, 99 Miles from L.A., and I literally took out my iPhone and filmed it just because I wanted to remember the, the song. And so it began to kind of germinate in me, this idea. It's a very, it sounds almost like a kind of positive, hopeful song in that the, the lead character of the song is driving towards his lover, and hoping that the relationship will still be there. But you can just tell it's doomed. <laughs> so, so you can just tell he's just got his mind full of nonsense and that and memory. And so that kind of idea of a relationship and that, I don't know, kind of uh, lack of understanding of, of the hopefulness that you might have for it working out, success, love, uh, you know, really coming your way, um, started something in me about characters and ideas. And I'm 
often sort of working in the land of noir in my writing. And to me, uh, it dovetailed really nicely together with that. And that I really feel like when noir flourishes in our, in our culture, it's because we've lost faith in the idea that things will indeed work out for us we go over to the dark side because the light side isn't working, right? So we, uh, we're we willing to commit that crime or kill that person or <laughs> do what's necessary to make our lives happen for ourselves because we no longer believe that staying on the, on the side of good will pay off. And so those two ideas together, this sort of, you know, forlorn concept about love not working out and this noirish uh, undertone. So it's a, really, yeah, we're, we're working together for me as I started. So it's a real cozy love story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I always say, and that just seemed like a happy little jumping off it, off point. For, yeah. <laughs> <for a look. laughs> well, there you go. Well, do you find it, um, a lot of fiction writers, um, we speak to always kind of, um, talk about, um, their relationship with their characters and, and how the characters are, important to them they might be like their family kids friends whatever they always have these descriptions and they hear the voices or they see the pictures and stuff of of these characters and stuff what's your experience well i find that they really that they really speak for me and that once you define your characters well they know what they want to do inside of any given scene that you put them into and uh i also uh i've been calling this kind of auto-fiction, autobiographical fiction, there's a lot of me, myself, and I inside of all of the different characters. Nobody is me, but every character has a lot of details from my life, ideas from it. And I think it was around the time of Truman Capote's writing that people coined that term auto-fiction with the idea that you take things from real life and then you subvert it into a story. And uh, so... I did a lot of that, and uh, there's a lot of kind of, I don't know, banking of memories of things that I went through that then become uh, a story pointer or a character moment. So uh, so they, they're not just important to me in a way. It's like, you know, they are me, and that's a very different thing, I think, than writing for cinema. There was a, there's a very... Uh, clear separation, I think. You don't, it's not, it's not as personal, I don't find, when I'm writing screenplays as when I did this. Well, do you use your experiences as an actor to uh, create character? Well, it's funny because I would never call myself an actor. I did it when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there has been a new experience that has been really interesting and fun, which is doing book readings. You have to, uh, you know, read this thing aloud. And once again, knowing that they, that they are me and knowing or based out of myself and then knowing that they are these characters who have to express themselves, you begin to have to act to read um, mm-hmm. and, and let people sort of in on the feeling of the chapter of the characters, et cetera. And so that, that has been helpful, but, but I think coming from that and coming from, Filmmaking in general, directing actors is, in a way, acting just through people who are good at it instead of you trying to do it yourself. <laughs> and so you're, you're digging under the idea of character, motivation, who people are, and 
you know, in my bio, I even talk about that, uh, that I'm the son of a psychologist. And I think that in our house, that was always encouraged, the idea of making connections between people's choices and who they are and how they represent themselves. And then my stepfather was the city editor of the Los Angeles Times. Uh, he did the Metro section. I don't know if you remember mm. that, if either of yeah. you were Angelinos, but um, the Metro section was like where they reported about the Hillside Strangler or, mm. uh, you know, other kind of, you know, crimes and misdemeanors going on in the city. <laughs> and so it was all, it was all part of it when we were, when we were growing up. Uh, so I think a lot of that has come into the writing. I think a lot of those uh, young experiences then inform the adult experience. Do you ever worry about kind of exposing some of your own vulnerability by putting yourself and your feelings into some of the characters, especially in today's world? Because now it's everyone gets a hold of you now. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm less concerned about myself and more concerned about other people. Like I think there's a lot of my family in chapter 16. So, uh, so, you know, sometimes you think, Oh God, mom, don't read that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, as I'm kind of an open book, I don't, I don't mind, uh, talking about myself, exposing things. I'm always sort of con like confused by our current state of culture where everyone is so, overwhelmed and and worried about security and making sure that nobody can get onto your computer and nobody can see what's on your phone and all those things and i'm like you know i am who i am I, you know i'm not too worried about what someone might find out i'm not running for office yeah well i i think it's all good i think it's it's it, you know it, it, i'm i'm not either but it's also um you know, you got to keep the shots, your head shots separate from your dick shots. That's all. Well, <laughs> <laughs> right. Because then, you know, you know, then it can go too far. You know, you blackmail right. and stuff. But nudity is out. Yeah. Well, nudity right where they now, can prove it's want. you. Right. <laughs> you know, but it's about proof. No, I think I think what it is, what I mean is because, um, you know, you can put certain feelings in into a character and have it come out. And then nowadays people can review it and say, oh, my God, who would think like that? What a stupid thing. And, you know, right. like they're kind of taking Even something, that's, evil, yeah, right? something uh, important yeah. to you and they're making it seem kind of, yeah, whatever. You know? Well, you've read the book. Exactly what are you talking about, sir? Well, chapter 16, <laughs> when you're talking, no, <laughs> talked about your poor mother. Um, uh, well, yeah, let's talk. No, about no, I understand what you're saying. And I, and I, think, it, I think it's true that, that there's a – there's you reveal yourself much more in print and it's in print. And so, whereas, you know, somehow there's a, especially with what I've been doing in the last decade or so making documentaries about other people, I'm really revealing their past and, and traumas and, <laughs> and foils and, and successes. And uh, whereas with something like this, you begin to immediately wonder with the writer, you know, well, which part of this is him and what, what does he really believe? And, you know, uh, is it, you know, do I have, do I have a murderous streak in me <laughs> or, or, you know, or am I, or am I, you know, ready to go rob a bank? It, you can, you can kind of wonder, I think more about the, the writer. And I agree with you that it's, that we do live in a time where almost anything you say can be twisted, turned. I have a very good friend, um, 
who shall remain nameless to protect her. Oh, please. Who, who just, um, <laughs> who did a blog in, uh, in Portland and the town turned on her. And, uh, and it was, it was interesting. She said it was that, that experience that you see on TV where suddenly, you know, you've got reporters in your yard. Yeah. Uh, well, know, as long they as they're good looking. Looks <laughs> 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 like they said a dick pic first. Yeah. <laughs> of course that makes it all worthwhile um well yeah but you know it's just it's, you do also then sort of have to uh, like because with these characters okay and 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 who you've got going here and you end up you know because the you know there he's in a love affair with a woman and then he, he's kind of falling for a guy down the road um but do you feel like you have to be careful in political correctness terms well i mean i am a feminist so and i wear a t-shirt sometimes that says this is what a feminist looks like yeah. so i'm careful about making sure that i that i give strong representation to who that woman is uh instead of kind of throwing her under the bus so you know men always always go for men and toss the woman aside it was you know i i was i was trying to make her powerful interesting and important in the story and that, that in, in many ways she drives the story. So, uh, the, in that particular kind of, uh, you know, arena, I'm careful already because I care. Uh, and I would say that that ends up being a lot of what, you know, can sometimes drive decision-making in writing. Also, what I think happens sometimes is that quite, you know, unaware, you will do something, draw something, and not know that it's, I don't know, uh, incendiary or offensive. So, <laughs> so I mean, being careful is one thing, and just expressing yourself and then finding out, oh, wow, that, that really pushed some buttons, uh, you know, is another. But uh, I haven't had that happen yet. I haven't had somebody come up to me yet and say, you know, why did you x with this character you know why did this person do this why did this person do that mm. uh my publisher was very was very good about uh sometimes words and saying do you really want to use this word here about you know a certain character um the character the word that came up was gypsy oh right, right? Yeah. That, that i had talked about ramon's background and he is mexican-american uh and you know, that, that his parents were gypsies. And he was saying, you know, that's just, that's not as accepted a term anymore. Right, right. Do you, you, do you have the same publisher as me? I'm, <laughs> i got to look this up. Because, yeah, because I, I, I was having some issues with that. And, and also when I, when I used the term ghetto, oh, my God. Right, it, you know. Yeah. And, but that's what I'm saying about being careful and why I think it is good, which is that, that if, we, if we take a second to think, is there a better word than gypsy? Is there a better word than ghetto? And I do that with, through the whole book. I mean, you know, I, I stop myself and say, you know, oh, you know, can, can I get a stronger verb there? Whatever it might be. So, uh, so if there's a word that's potentially offensive to someone and that's not my intention, I'm happy to look at it and think about what I might say instead. Yeah, but I think, um, see, for me, I'm primarily nonfiction and true stories. And a lot of times, um, these characters are who they are. I can't really alter them. And that, that kind of leads to the issues I have with publishers in that sense. Because 
they say the things they do, they, they act and react the way they are because of who they are. And I, I can't really filter it too much because then it starts to become not real. You know, it starts to, I'm polishing uh, the characters. But with you yeah. in this fiction, I just wonder if, um, could you go too far and polish it too much? Because some of these well, words are, are too like Yeah. When things are in quotation marks, it belongs to the character and you're much more allowed to kind of do whatever that character might say. So in your case, when you're writing true, you know, true slash real people, and it's not you calling something ghetto, it's that somebody called something ghetto or, you know, used a word that you might not use. Yeah. Yeah. I went through that experience, but it's, you still can't win. <laughs> Just so you know, well, you can't, you, because then it's, you're presenting that to the people, then that means you're, you're giving that person exposure and make, voice, you know, yeah. so you, you can't win. I've, I've fought that fight for 20 years. And I actually got uh, t- taken slightly to task for being mean to Desert Hot Springs, you know, at the movie, <laughs> the, the book. Actually, I'm still bad at talking about movie versus book, but the book. Um, you know, takes place that they commit their crime in Los Angeles and then they hide out in Palm Springs, but they end up uh, with a stop in Desert Hot Springs. And I describe it in very unfriendly terms <laughs> and people in the valley, which is what they sort of call the, the Coachella Valley, the Palm Springs area, took me to task for it. And I said, well, it wasn't me saying it, it was my character saying it. And the, uh, the writer interviewing me said, well, that's a cop out. Yeah. 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 There's, there's a point you always get taken. Now I, I figured you were the character Shelley for sure. Well, she's the English major. She's the former English major and she is the mastermind behind everything. Um, But I would say that if I were to, if I were to uh, commit, I'd say I am Frank. Frank dressed as Shelley. Is the lead is the lead male character, right? Yeah. And he's, uh, uh, you know, he's a uh, wanted to be a, wanted to be a singer, uh, and ends up being a disgruntled professor and finds himself kind of pulled along by the, by the, by the dreams of potentially getting what he finally wanted. <laughs> and, uh, I'd say maybe I fall a little bit more into, into his category than I do into, into Shelley's ability to mastermind whole thing Mm. (laughs) but um but no there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of me and shelly ramon's much too handsome there's no way i could be him (laughs) as we're supposed to dave kick in there we'll say but you're far too handsome Absolutely. (laughs) You interrupted me before I had the chance. Oh, sorry. There we go. No. no. (laughs) More handsome than Ramon. Yeah. Here, you know. Um Oh, that's terrible. Uh, I don't believe any of it. Whatever you guys say, now, that's it. Okay. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the book, so so when someone um, picks up your book, they read it, at the end of it, is there some sort of a subtext or something that you want people to take away from the book, uh, uh, something besides the entertainment and the uh, the journey, so to speak, across the top? And, you know, and this, this I ask because it could – it could happen intentionally, but it could also happen organically in a story. Yeah, you know, um, I write tragedy. I tend to write tragedy. And so what I really feel like happens when you see something that ends tragically is that as an audience member, you walk out of the experience with that in mind, wanting that to not happen that way. 
And so I think it affects your choices immediately afterwards that it's like you see how this went in a downward spiral because of the choices that got made by these characters. And I think it helps you to say, well, you know, life shouldn't be like that. I don't want that to happen. And uh, I think that that's more activist than a happy ending where you get to walk out and go, well, that worked out. I'm, <laughs> it was scary there for a minute, but it all worked out great. So I can walk <laughs> home and not think about that any further. So, uh, so, you know, there, there are choices that the characters make in the ways that they fail to reach each other. I think that uh, that brings about their own kind of downfall. And so I think that, it, that there's a warning inside of it. It's always hard with mystery fiction because you're trying not to give anything away, right? Like you can't say, <laughs> well, when he does this, then that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think attracts you to, uh, you know, personally to writing tragedy? Huh. I mean, it's, as you can tell, I'm not a very dark person. I mean, I actually, I, I actually see a lot of the bright side of life, but I do think that it is uh, a powerful format. And I do think that it, it makes us think in the way that, uh, you know, say romantic comedy doesn't. <laughs> um, and uh, so to me, I think it's a, it, it, it draws us in, it plays to our dark side, it makes us have to really kind of churn about in thought. And I like that. So, and I've always kind of been attracted to it. People have said to me that it, that, that sometimes I don't match my material because it's so, it can be so dark. Mm. Yeah, but they say that about serial killers too. Well. <laughs> <laughs> he was the nicest guy. He was the nicest guy. We never would have guessed. He used to play Santa Claus at the... <laughs> right. at the mall and and you, you know, know yeah so i you always know, put my dog under the chin yeah <laughs> <laughs> where well, you're not fooling us <laughs> um so this that's interesting so wh what do you think you learned from the process of writing well i'm i certainly learned i want to do more of it uh i i very much enjoyed it i think that the difference really between writing screenplays and writing novels uh, is that uh, it is done and it is what it is when it's finished. And a screenplay, you write towards this idea that suddenly millions of dollars are going to show up and this thing is going to end up on the screen. And that happens so rarely that, you know, you, you do a lot of writing that doesn't exist because if a film doesn't get filmed, it, it isn't a film. Where a book is a book is a book. So uh, it's been great to to write to have it be something that gets out there and that people can read um, is supremely satisfying. The other thing I think that I, that I tapped back into was the original desire when I was young that I, that I wanted to write. And it's been uh, kind of validating to know that I can. I mean, you, I, I have been a writer. My whole life I've been a writer to some extent. Even when you're doing documentary films, you are writing. I always say the editing process is the writing of a, of a documentary film, but that, uh, that, that this voice exists and that when I sat down to do it, it was there, uh, is also very satisfying. So anything you would have done differently? Um, you know, it's, I already kind of have ideas for a sequel. And so I guess if I were to have done anything differently, I maybe might've taken more time and made the whole book longer. <laughs> because because people 
are already telling me what a what a quick, fast, fun read it is. Now that's a compliment, except for that often, I mean, I'm doing readings and people are buying my book and telling me two days later how much they enjoyed the book. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's a little too short. Yeah. <laughs> so, maybe maybe daddy should have taken a little bit more time and sat down and thought up more of what happens next but yeah. um i don't think that anything that i did internally i would have fleshed out further but i can see already that there is more story to tell as i've been ruminating where things would go from what happens at the end of the book so uh so i could see that if I were to, if I were to do it differently, and when I do it again, I think I will try to uh, push myself towards um, length. <laughs> yeah. More. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not not just length, but more, and that it's that it's okay to uh, to take your time. I think when you are trained in screenplay, you really do try to get to the point. Uh, you've got ninety minutes to tell a story. Right. Robert Wise, great filmmaker. Uh, did West Side Story and you know a hundred other things. Uh, once told my husband when he was doing a website for him, if you can't tell a story in ninety minutes, you can't tell a story. Uh, and I think that's very true in film. He's also the guy who made Sound of Music, which goes on and on and on forever. But <laughs> <laughs> perhaps that's where he learned it. Yeah. But, <laughs> but in general, I think that you know we think that way as filmmakers. Let me let me put this together. Get to the point fulfill the the action, fulfill the story. And when you write a book, you have so much more latitude. Right. So you can do length and girth in a book. <laughs> right? <laughs> Correct. Okay. Well, you know, one of the dreams has always been that idea of the spine in the bookstore, that you would go down the, you know, the, um, the shelf at a bookstore uh, in the ease, and you'd be able to pull out, you know, Eversole, my book, right, under E. And I was... Uh, at Powell's Books in um, Portland, Portland. Yeah. and the mystery section, and they had my book, and I was very close to the James Elroy section oh. uh, because, you know, E-B-E-L, and those were much fatter books, and his name was much <laughs> larger on the time. And I thought, hmm, girth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. That's the first thing that comes to mind when I'm in a bookstore is girth. <laughs> they are sexy. Bookstores are sexy. Yeah, and that's a different bookstore, anyway. <laughs> wow. So, how was your process? How do you find? Uh, and because you mentioned the, um, you know, the uh, pandemic, which I heard it was fake, but the, <laughs> the, <laughs> the pandemic. So you're sitting there and you're you're at home, but are you are, are you that type of guy that can sit down and just go, okay, well, I'm writing five hours today. Monday to Friday, that's it, and you turn on the clock and you can do it? Or does all of this craziness outside of you sort of interfere? Like, you know, you have Donald Trump as your president and you've got yeah. all this weird stuff going on. Does it affect your writing? I'm actually really no good at the at the setting the clock and saying I'm going to write. When I was young, I read an article. I was I had gone away to Spain to write. And I had read an article in Esquire magazine about writers who write, and it, and they all talked about locking themselves in a room at nine o'clock in the morning and not letting themselves out until five. And I and I just felt horrible because I was like, God, I'm ne I'm never going to be that person. I can't do it. Uh, I stare at the ceiling and I watch TV and I procrastinate and I clean the whole house. 
so what I find is, is that I really have to retreat. I have to go away. Mm-hmm. And so I have to get, a, I have to remove myself from all of those distractions and all of the things that I will choose to do instead of write, because I'll do pretty much anything, but um, if given the chance. <laughs> so, uh, but I, but I also now, I mean, I'm, I'm 58 and I have learned that I have over the years been a very productive person. So I'm no longer hard on myself about the idea of what I do to get there and whatever it might be, if it, you know, if it takes, you know, watching Ellen in the afternoon to be able to get me to sit down and write a page or two, then, then that's what it is. So, uh, so I don't really beat myself about it anymore, but I, but I do get a way to do it. So last year I had this idea growing and I went to Provincetown and spent the, uh, not the whole summer, but I spent, you know, a portion of the summer there. And that's where the bulk of the book got written. And then when I got home and it was being published and I had to do the next work, I went up to Joshua Tree and rented a house and made myself complete the task. So uh, I also, I write in what I call rhythm, which is that I really can't go forward without being in it. And so if I take time off, then I have to start all over, not start all over with the writing, but start all over by, by reading through it, writing along with it uh, to get myself back into the rhythm of what I've done so that I can go forward. And so it works much better for me to do the retreat where, where every day, even if I'm only doing a little, I get something done. Hmm. So, so you get right into your character. You're like one of those method actors, right? You kind of like get into it, into the story. Yeah, and shut everything else out for a minute. Yeah. I think that's true. I think that, you know, to, to work. And I think maybe that also comes from the concept of filmmaking and editing, which is that, you know, we often have a deadline. And so I'll be, you know, have all my footage together, you know, my husband and I for our next documentary, and we have to turn it into something. And we have film festival deadlines or, you know, people that we promised the film to, uh, by a certain time or date. And so there is a real completion ethic that goes on about must sit down, must work, you know, force yourself to, uh, to, you know, to get those sequences done. And the sequences are usually in my head. I write in what I call tent poles. So I know, for instance, in a book like this, that I have these three characters. I need to make them all come together and meet. I need them to decide to do the crime. I need the crime to happen. I need them to, uh, do the getaway. I need things to go wrong, et cetera. And I have those tent poles in my head, but I don't block it out for myself. I don't put a bunch of cards on the wall. I don't, um, I don't make an outline. I don't really know where it's going to go as I'm writing. I let the characters enter scenes and hmm. go from there. Yeah. Do you, do you dress up like your characters? Like you dressed like Shelly? And... <laughs> I don't, I just, I only dress up as Amber Heard. <laughs> Amber Turd. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dave, someone's stealing your show. (laughs) What you're going to do now? I I don't know. (laughs) Well, have your characters, in writing this way, have your characters done anything to surprise you? Do they just go off the rails and kind of take over the plot? They kind of always surprise me. I mean, I find inside of scenes, I mean, I, I guess that the one thing that I will say is that I do know where they're going, and so they can't go completely off the rails because they do have to get to what 
is already kind of set up in my mind of what I think is going to happen. But for instance, there is a kind of um, wild scene at the end of this book where when everything really goes wrong, uh, you know, I didn't know who would be left standing. Wow. Uh, because I thought, well, they're going to get in that room and it's going to happen. And I didn't quite know exactly how that was going to play out. Hmm. Uh, and that's kind of almost like improv, right? You're getting yeah. actors together and letting them kind of, uh, you know, from their personal intentions, go through the motions of, of what they would do. And sometimes it will surprise you the direction that it will, will end up taking. Um, so I do let those kind of things happen organically. Hmm. It's interesting. So, and in all my writing, I, you know, and also in all of our documentary filmmaking, we, we go in again, knowing those tent poles, but we do not know how we're going to, you know, shape it or how the ending is going to happen or what's going to come before something else. And, and often when you're making a documentary, you discover things about people you didn't know. Uh, because again, they're speaking yeah. truthfully from themselves. And you had this idea of this thing that you were going to try to say with this documentary. And then out comes Pierre Cardin saying something completely different than you thought. You're like, oh, well, right. he's really not that person. He's this person. Yeah. He, he expresses his girth. His <laughs> 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 length. Or perhaps his length. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, where do you see stuff going now? So you said you're going to do a the sequel, maybe or maybe not. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, without revealing too much, the end of of 99 Miles from LA does end in Mexico, and we sold our house in Palm Springs and bought a house in Mexico this year. So I'm going, and uh, when I get there, I kind of feel like that will inform a lot of what I'm feeling should be going into what I think this next book is. And uh, it wasn't on purpose. I mean, again, the, you know, the character sort of wrote the story himself, the character of P. David Ebersole decided to buy a house in, in Mexico uh, while he was writing a book about it. So um, uh, uh, the idea of being an expat, the idea of being in a, in a different culture, bringing our culture to it um, is a lot of, I think what's going to start kind of going into the next book. I have a, I have a title for it, knowing that I do want to use uh, the characters of this book and that I kind of wanted to spin off, which is 24 Hours from Tulsa, mm. the Gene Pitney song, um, <laughs> which likewise sounds kind of like this positive, fun uh, song about I'm 24 hours away from you, darling. I'm on my way, way to Tulsa. I'll be there in a minute. But truthfully, what happens is that the main character of the song stops in a motel 24 hours away from his beloved has an affair and falls in love with that person instead so the song is really saying i almost made it well there once again is a cheery place to jump off of to start my next <laughs> wow boy you're just all full of fun <laughs> and, and so uh when you're down in mexico and then the authorities discover all the bodies that were parked under your house Right. So back um, at the old house, right? Yeah. And and the house that is described in ninety nine miles from LA is my now former house in Palm Springs. So uh you know, it is possible that the HOA could go in there looking for bodies. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a reason why this tree could never grow. <laughs> oh boy. Um so uh, now in this um 
ever-changing world, how do you like to be found by readers and fans and people that, or maybe people that don't like you? Um, do you have a website? Do you have uh, social media? What's your, what's your way of doing it? Uh, you know, I, I enjoy Facebook the most, to tell you the truth. I know I'm old, but mm -hmm. I do like it the best. Because it, to me, it's still a storytelling format. Um, so uh, I have a strong presence on Facebook, both for the book uh, and for my own self. And then I'm tr really trying to learn Instagram and get myself into that as well. So there's a 99 miles page for Instagram and a P. David Eversol page on Instagram as well. Instagram's much more public. And, uh, you know, Facebook, you can kind of keep your own, uh, your own circle together, which I like. But, um, and then I have, we have a website for our company, which is EversolHughes.com. Well, okay. So, so we're going to put all that up on the website too, so people can find you with one click. Without right. a lot, of, a lot of our listeners can't can't read, <laughs> which is why they're listening. Yeah, that's why they're listening. Right? They yeah, we will give, you know what? There is an audio version of the book as well, so, <laughs> so, so your readers are incapable. You are in there, in there, like, <laughs> and uh, you know, we really want like, come on, people, give them some really good mail. Tell tell them what you think. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can do comments under Amazon. Yeah, you know that—that's always frightening. The comment section. Do you do you do you follow those or do you stay away from them? Well, it depends on on uh, for me mostly which movie, right? Where I can go back and if I need to sort of feel good, I can look up the the comments under movies I know the public likes, <laughs> <laughs> like Sally Field and Soap Dish going to the mall to like have people. You know, come around her and go. Oh, you're the lady in the in the soap opera. Yeah. Um, so sometimes I can go and go. Like, oh wow, look, see, people really liked that movie. Yeah. But then there's ones you have to stay away from. Yeah. Well, the, the one you know that everybody hated. Yeah. But you could you know, you could always hunt them down. You know. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I don't I I, I don't love that culture that uh, that there are comments below everything because I do believe that there was a, a culture of review that used to happen and it's been exploded i mean there's really nobody that we listen to anymore specifically like we might have listened to pauline kale back in the day about films uh, everybody has has an opinion that's a great thing but it also means that you know you get trolls you get people who you know just to have said something horrible and incorrect about something that you've done and you can't get rid of it. So, uh, so it, it travels along with you, but yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's the modern world. Yeah. And that's why I hunt them down. <laughs> 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 I'm not taking it. I write about them in a true crime book or something, you know, exactly. <laughs> just kill them off in yeah. the next book. That's and, great. and you know, make, make sure they, uh, they suffer. You know, but uh, no, it's 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 all good. You know, and stuff. You know, who who do you who do you look for for inspiration, or do you? Uh, no, I really do. You know, when I when I wrote this, um, I reread some of the things that I that I do love, and so for instance, my favorite book is Giovanni's Room um, by James Baldwin, and uh, I love Joan Didion and, and her specificity, and so um, I. And I rewatched a couple of kind of noirish kind of films that have always mattered to me, like After Dark, My Sweet, and um, Gilda, which I love. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, to get yourself in the tone and in the mood. But I also, for this book, because one of the things that happens in writing a novel is that you get to 
express that which is not necessarily seen in a film you have to write what's on screen and here you get to write what's in people's heads or you can write scenery and what's and what's going on uh i went back and watched all the old antonioni films um because i wanted to sort of have that experiential uh component to it where sometimes it's just the leaves blowing is what is what matters so um i i i do always i think kind of write with uh inspiration surrounding me i like to to um to go back to the people I love. I actually have a clear Lucite desk at home and I load it with, um, with visual inspiration when I'm working and writing. So the drawers, everyone always says, how can you work at this desk? <laughs> Stay neat. But it's really because, you know, you, you have a messy cabinet over to the right, but the, <laughs> but the desk itself is like a display case. So you can kind of put things in it and have it creep on up into the computer. Um, and is it pictures of girth? <laughs> you are stuck on that. I am. Just, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Ever since I talked about my next book being big and fat. <laughs> it's a fascinating word. Fascinating work. Well, well, people, you know, um, you know, we need you to come buy this book. Great book. It's called 99 Miles from L.A. And uh, the writer has been our guest. Mr. P. David Eversall. So thank you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. And what fun. You never know if it's going to be fun, right? You come on and you think, <laughs> well, maybe it's going to be serious. But this was great fun. <laughs> Thanks, David. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.